Father, we come tonight and, and we, we ask you to glorify yourself tonight. Glorify yourself by revealing your, the truth that you'd have for us, revealing, well, really who you are to us. Lord, we acknowledge this is a very powerful passage, one that is often talked about is the center of this teaching on Solomon that we've been going through. And there are truths here, Lord, that are critical to us. Help us see that. Help us see what it means to be your children and have a Father that loves us. But often that means things that, well, we might find less than pleasant. Help us understand, Lord, what you desire for us. And you desire those things out of love. And may we always, always keep that in mind. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right. We still, uh, we just built the ark last week. Thank you, uh, Pastor Eric, for doing that. Filling in, and, um, and we're not quite done with the temple. What did I say, built the ark? We built the temple last week, and uh, he showed that video, right? That show, isn't that helpful? Gives great visualization on that. Um, but we've got we've to bring one more thing to make it complete, and that's what we're going to start off with tonight. So we're in chapter 8, verse 1, and why don't we go ahead? 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so what, what's going on here? <laughs> to, to make it in simple uh, terms, Solomon builds this temple, this house of the Lord, and, and they bring the ark, which is in many ways, symbolic of the presence of God. So they are trying to bring God 
into his house. Okay? That's a way they might have, they probably would have looked at it because they see the ark. By the way, here's a, get a, just a picture of the ark. Maybe. My broken finger's not working. Okay, can you? <laughs> Is that going to advance? Okay, you keep working on it. I'll keep talking. I got a picture of the ark. If you remember the ark, okay, one of those things built back when we were building a tabernacle. A tabernacle is like a, a tent version of a temple, okay? In fact, it was very much like the temple in portable form. Just like your tent is like your house, tabernacle was like what the temple was going to be. And they built the ark, and the ark is into what? The uh, stone tablets, second stone tablets, first one's broken, second one's made of the Ten Commandments. Symbolic of the covenant between God and the Israelites. Okay? Oh, there it is. Very good. Or a artist's rendering of it. Okay? Obviously, we don't have it today. You all saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, you know, we don't have this thing. Okay? And uh, don't really know where it is. Much speculation on where it might be. Um, and so in there went the tablets, symbolic again of the covenant, okay? And this covenant between God and man, okay, is what holds the relationship together. Now the relationship is still built on love, love of God of the Israelites and Israelites of God. Remember, love the Lord your God, the Shema. And this is symbolic of it, but it's also been seen as where God would dwell on earth at times. In fact, he spoke at times to different people from the top of the ark, okay? So that vents the presence. Now, this always gets tricky for us because as we're going to see, because we're going to place this in the Holy of Holies, we have to hold this lightly, we think of it in, in almost human or physical terms. Like Tom can be in one place at one time, right? So you put Tom on top of that ark, that's the only place Tom is. Well, that is not the case of God, okay? So they bring the ark in, and the poles, remember they can't touch the ark. It's not a good idea to touch the ark. Most of the people who have touched the ark have died because they're not holy enough, because it's symbolic again of the presence. So they have long poles. That's what they carry the ark with, Okay? Some people say, well, wait a minute, aren't there supposed to, isn't it supposed to be the staff of Aaron is also supposed to be in there, and a bit of the manna is supposed to be in there? Well, obviously not. It says only the tablets. And there's a much debate as to whether they were actually ever in or they were beside. Now, we're not going to get into that whole debate, but for some of you are going, wait a minute, there's three things in the ark. No, there's one thing in the ark, and the other two right now seem like they'd be on the side. So they bring it in to... The Holy of Holies. Oh, I can control this again. Um, I'm going to go over here, use my really smooth right hand. Okay, so this is the, what's called the temper, temple proper. It's the building inside the big courtyard with the, the walls, okay? So there would be like on the outside here walls, and this would be the courtyard, okay? Steps up. Here's the Holy of Holies, Okay? Now, do you remember last week how those bird-like creatures had their wings spread out? Okay. 
Okay? So what happens is the ark is underneath those two wings that come toward the middle. And it's right underneath it. Okay? So this becomes the Holy of Holies or the presence or the dwelling place of God. That doesn't mean God dwells there exclusively. No. Everywhere. It doesn't also mean that's the only place God is on earth. Okay? What it means is, for the Israelite, it's a place I can turn and I know I can interact with God. Okay? Now, no one, no one is allowed in here. No one's allowed past these drapes, okay? Or the veil, the curtain. Because we are not holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Okay? Now, I, I, that, to me, this is always the power of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. What Christ does is destroy that um, curtain right there so that we have access directly to God. What is actually more, he has access to us, the Holy Spirit, by what he's done. Okay? That separation, which is sin, we have to be out here, or Israelites, God's in there. This is what separates us and protects us from dying because we are not holy enough to be in the presence of God. Okay? The only person that's allowed in here is the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to, uh, uh, first off, he atones for his own sins so he can go in, and then he atones for the sins of the nation of Israel. That's the only time they're allowed in here. Okay? Famous story. When, when the Greeks desecrate the, the temple, um, when they come in and, and, and take over, they, they come in and they walk in there and they go, there's not even anything in here. And we go, well, what happened to the ark? Well, the ark had already been, uh, was gone somewhere, hidden, destroyed, whatever. Because um, at the end of the second temple, 587, 586, the ark is no more heard of. And so this becomes, at the absence of this, the presence of God is gone, okay? But that's, we're 350 years yet to come, all right? So this is the temple. Bring the ark in there, okay? Do we kind of got a visualization of this? He's doing this at the time of the year, which is actually right now, by the way. Would have been this time of the year when they're doing the dedication. And it seems like he's doing the dedication 11 months after the temple is complete. It was completed in the eighth month and the celebrations in the seventh month. So it seems he waited until this specific time to have this. And this is the time for the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay? And the Festival of Tabernacles was the festival God gave to the people so they would remember that they were in the desert, a tabernacle's a tent, that they would remember that they wandered in the desert being led by God and being sustained for God, by God for all those years. Why would Solomon wait till the festival of tabernacles to dedicate the temple? Because this is the ultimate, the ultimate conclusion, fulfillment of the settlement of the people of God in the land. They've been in the land for years, but now finally they have this central worship place that God had talked about in Deuteronomy 
And they are now settled at peace. No longer wanderers, no longer having to war, no longer having to fight. They have settled into a time of peace with not only their neighbors, each other, but most importantly with God. So that's all going on in this, this opening um, uh, bringing in of the ark. The question that we don't know is, is God going to accept this? We built the house, we brought the ark in, we're going, okay God, here you go. For you home builders, you know, you, you build the house and you bring in the new homeowners and you're looking at their face. You ever watch those HGTV shows, right? The makeover thing. And we're all looking at the person's face when they see the house. How many takes did it get, do you think it takes to get that look they're looking for, you know? First time they go, oh, oh, this is it, huh? Hmm. Okay, no, take two. Okay, can we get a little more excitement? So they're trying to see how God's going to react, Okay. So let's go on. Verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so we end that passage right before the cloud comes in, right? And the cloud is is almost always what? Symbolic of the presence of God, right? Saw it at Mount Sinai. We saw it as, as leading them by day through the desert. So God comes in, and that's a good sign, right? We're going to have to wait a little while to see his reaction, God's reaction, but we're thinking that's a good thing. And Solomon acknowledges that by saying that he dwells in the thick darkness, the thick darkness of the cloud. Okay, so he does that. And so we're feeling good, but there's something that kind of is a red flag for us. And it's when Solomon talks, and he goes through this, and he you know, blesses the Lord, and he, and he says all these things, but he has this two-word phrase in there that's just a little trembling. I have. I have indeed built you an exalted house. I have raised, I, w- I have raised in the place of David my father and sit on the throne. I have built the house. I have provided a place for the ark. I have, I have. 
Who did all this? It's God. Who allowed it to happen? Who called it to happen? Who provided the materials that were needed for it to happen? Who oversaw its happening? God. And, and the fact that Solomon has this confidence in himself that we see building is, is another one of those red flags. We know where this is going, okay? And next week, we're going to get there, unfortunately, in a hurry because of how quickly it goes, at least in the narrative. But we see him kind of getting coming. You know, no one just goes, is walking closely with God and then just, you know, on a Wednesday morning turns and goes the other way. But you get comfortable. Solomon's getting comfortable. I've built the temple. I'm on the throne. I got this thing. I got the ark in there, the cloud. I'm wise. I'm rich. Everything's going great. Next week, she, you know, the queen of Sheba's going to show up. I mean, I'm it. And confidence does what? It lessens our fear. We start to take our eye off the ball. And we start making little steps. Often the smallest steps down this way. And you make one step and, well, that wasn't so bad. Okay. I didn't get struck by lightning. Another, And then we end up over here. And we go, wow, how, how did I get over here? And then sometimes, as in the case of Solomon, you get over here and it doesn't go very well. And we start to realize what a gap there is. And we start to see that confidence build in I, 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 instead of God, God, God. Well, that brings us to this prayer, the prayer that really starts in verse 22 and goes quite a ways, one of the most uh, profound prayers in all the Bible. And it's the centerpiece of the entire Solomon narrative. So um, it's going to take us a little while to get through it, but there's a tremendous amount of uh, great material in there. So let's go to that. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their ways, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. 
and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven uh, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, but there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. 
for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So really, this is, this is the essence of how they see the temple. Solomon uh, starts off by humbling himself in, before the altar, for the presence of God. And he acknowledges that the temple does not contain God. The temple is not the only place God is even on earth. But he is saying that the presence of God is there. Okay, so this is that balancing act we got to kind of get in our head, all right? But for Christians, it shouldn't be too tough because we acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us. So if he's in each follower across the world, yeah, he's in a lot of places. Okay, so having acknowledged that, Solomon goes on to say, when we come to pray this house, may it be like a conduit to you in heaven. May there be something special about us turning to this house. May it be something special for us being in the presence of this house at this altar when we pray to you both individually and corporately. Okay? And so, listen to us when we pray in this dwelling place of yours. And and the key word at the end of 30 is what? Forgive which is then the the start to that which he lays out. So if a man sins against his neighbor, and in essence, uh, there there can't be a clear decision by a a human, may your justice come through this house. So may this house be a house of justice for man on earth. Okay. Next one, when your people, Israel, are defeated by an enemy because they've sinned, and they repent and turn, Forgive them and, and restore them. When the heavens are shut up, and otherwise there's no rain because they've sinned and they repent, let it rain again. When there's famine in the land, you, you, get, you get this. So this idea of this house being a place we can go to interact with God, and oh, by the way, may it be a vehicle for forgiveness when I repent. Okay, and that's key because often the forgiveness is desired without the repentance and the repentance is critical to the forgiveness. Now, I want to make a point clear because it's come to my attention in the last week again. We talk about what we call Deuteronomic theology and it's called Deuteronomic theology because it's theology that comes out of the teaching in Deuteronomy. And we've said that Deuteronomic theology is throughout First and Second Kings. And, and I've tried to be clear about this, and I, and I want to be extremely clear because I, I still found people that didn't understand. Somehow, in our minds, we associate Deuteronomic theology being if you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, okay? Causal based on human behavior. Somehow, some people have associated with that. That's Old Testament theology. It's not relevant today. That is not True, it is totally, completely relevant today. In fact, it is the main theology of understanding why things happen today. It is throughout the New Testament. If you sin, you're going to get bad things. 
what we call Jovian theology, is another way of explaining things, not in contradiction, but in addition to. There are times when what's happening cannot be fully understood from a Deuteronomic standpoint. So we are given the Jovian, in other words, Job is not being punished, he's not being disciplined, he's not, God is not trying to achieve anything by what he's doing to Job from a standpoint in Job's life, okay? It isn't like we all are in the, you know, nothing bad that's ever happened to anybody is their fault or anybody else's fault, that's just the way we, we live in this world of what I call human grace, okay? Not godly grace, human grace, because we're giving everybody grace, well, it can't be your fault, so, why would God have bad things happen to us, okay? The same thing as there as today. To teach us, to cause us to repent, to have us turn back. Many of you are parents. You don't, well, we usually don't punish our children to punish our children. We do it to teach them to cause them to turn back, be out of love and wanting what's best for them. That's what Deuteronomy, when you read Deuteronomic theology, read Deuteronomy, if you will listen to what I tell you to do, it's going to go great for you. If you don't listen to what I'm telling you to do, it's not going to go great for you. How many parents in here have said that to a child? Would you just listen to me? If you listen to me, it would have gone a lot better for you back there. Okay, I'm going to have to whatever, you know, ground you, take away the whatever. It's the same thing. All right? We clear? We want to go, no, it can't be. It can't. No, yes, it is. It's all kinds of things. Even people that are walking closely with God, at times God will say, hey, can I just bring your attention to something? You kind of maybe drifting a little here. You're not as intense enough in, in, in seeking me. You're, you know, yeah, this thing, maybe you shouldn't be doing this thing. It's all those things. Our response isn't, oh, why is God being so mean to me? No, why does God love me so much that he's trying to get my attention to get me to do what's best for me and turn back? Think, the reason he's called a father is not because he's a father, but because that's the metaphor that works for us. Think of yourself as a parent. Think of your own child. What are you trying to achieve? Now, they may feel that, you know, you're being unreasonable. You've never heard that if you're a parent, right? And I'm sure we think of God that way, but we're the children. And he's just trying to get us to see what's best for us so many times. And if we started that way, if that was our first reaction, while this isn't going the best way I wish it was going, what is God maybe trying to teach me? Is there something I should be doing that I'm not doing? Is there something I'm doing I shouldn't do? Maybe I'm just getting lackadaisical in my approach to him. Maybe I haven't had enough time for him lately. And then the, the vice versa is when it's going great, that isn't a time to say, oh, I have done everything. No. So we stay humble and keep seeking after him. 
What Solomon is saying in all this is may the temple be a central key interaction place between the people of Israel and God. And that's what the temple becomes. Now the problem is, anytime you have something like that, it's pretty easy to what? Lose focus on that which you're trying to relate to and start relating to the thing. And that's what's going to happen. And we're going to see that over time as we go through First and Second Kings. But right now, it's all good. Temple's built. God's shown up, the cloud. He's about ready in a little bit to acknowledge that this was good and right and he's going to dwell there. And so right now, we're feeling, hmm, yeah, this is good. This is the high point of it all. This is a place I can go to seek for forgiveness. This is a place I can go to interact with God. This is a place I can go to, to petition him to get to know him, to worship him, to interact with him. We really haven't had this, but we had the tabernacle, but this is so totally different. But there's, there's another little... 41 through 43. When the foreigner comes, when the person comes that isn't an Israelite, may you hear their cry. In order that all peoples of the earth may know your name. Not only is this for the Israelites, this is the, the, the temple is the evangelistic tool. And that's quite frankly what temples were in the day. They'd build these massive things and people would come by and go, wow, what's that? Or they'd hear about it and they'd come. And that's really how they got converts to different religions. And he's saying, may this be an evangelistic tool. But we also have 46... He says, ah, when they sin and you're angry and they're carried away as captives to the land of the enemy. So already right here, whew, we're a long ways away from it happening. But And what's crazy, I find, is Solomon doesn't ask that they be returned. He asks that their captors have mercy upon them. That God would cause their captives to have mercy on them in captivity. Now this, along with other things, why people point that First and Second Kings probably was written when they were in exile after the Babylonians conquered Judah. May or may not be the case, but clearly Solomon here is anticipating them going into captivity. And then he gets down there and says, compassion. And he, and he, for you separated them. He reminds God who they are. You separated them from the peoples of the earth. These are your people. The people you used Moses to come out and Joshua to take the land. These are your people. Always remember that, God. All right, let's go on. Verse 54. Now Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. 
may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. This is one of the most amazing prayers, I think, in all the Bible. If we just pick it up at 56, through the end of that section to 61, if we prayed that prayer on a weekly basis, I think we would do ourselves well. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of his great promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night and may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be true, wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in the statutes and keeping his commands as to this day. I think all I'd change is maybe Israel, but then again, depending on your theology, you wouldn't even need to change that and make that a prayer. It's a powerful benediction, a powerful petition of God. All right, let's go on to 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel with him a great assembly, from Levo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day he sent the people away. And they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. First. All right, so he's dedicated the temple. He's, he's had his prayer. He's blessed the people. And now he throws a huge party. And it's really two weeks long. There's the, there's the dedication of the temple, that's seven days, and then there's the festival of the tabernacles, which is seven days also. So it's a two-week party. Staggering amount of food. Staggering amount. 22 oxen, 120,000 sheep. That is a lot of food. And so if you think, really, we forget sometimes, but the temple is really half slaughterhouse. You've probably heard that before, but with all the sacrifice of all the animals, okay, that's what's going on, and there's so many that it can't even be dealt with in the normal confines, so they have to actually use another part of the temple. 
And if you can imagine just all these animals and people coming. Now, the burnt offering is, is they, they burn the whole animal as an offering to God. No human gets any part of it. The rest of these, the, uh, the blood, the entrails, and the fat will be offered up to God. And then the, the, the meat would be taken by humans and consumed first by the priest and then, then the person offering. So all this is going on, and they're celebrating this fantastic event, the dedication of the central place of worship in Israel. And, and all that goes on, and it also is the fulfillment. So again, this, this tabernacle, this festival of tabernacles, this remembrance of that they, they wandered, they were not permanent in the land, the land promised to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of that promise. They are now in as completely as they're going to be really forever, brief period of time, hundreds of years later, during the Hasmonean period, where technically the land's a little bigger. But this is the, the purest fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And they've celebrated, and he sends the people away. Then they're thinking what? It can't get any better than this. And that brings us to chapter 9. 1 Kings 9, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins, Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. It's almost as if God can see what's happening. How Solomon's getting very comfortable. How the people are getting a little too comfortable. How they've lost some of their fear of the Lord. And so he appears to Solomon, appears to Solomon in a dream. This is the second time he does that. And he acknowledges the house. He says, I've consecrated this house that you've built. In other words, I've brought my presence. I've acknowledged it as my presence. Okay. So that's all good. And I will be there forever by putting my name there forever. Now, wait a minute. We all know there's no temple. 
We all know that there wasn't a temple since 587, even when Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. God dwelled there for a brief period of time, but by the time Jesus comes along here, it's not there. So how can God dwell in this temple when we know he hasn't? What does he mean by forever? What is the temple? It's Jesus, right? We see in the first four chapters of Matthew how Jesus becomes the new Israel, the new law, and the new temple. So when God says this, that is actually fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But we keep going. He says, okay, I'm there. And if you walk and if you do this and you do this. And then we get to verse 6. And that first word is one we should just circle. There's certain uh, words in the Bible, certain but words that are critical. They're hinge points. We see them in Ephesians. We see them in Romans. We see one right here. But if you turn aside from following me, and he lists all the bad things. It's like Deuteronomy, same thing. If you then, but if you then, hence the term Deuteronomic theology. And he says specifically, it isn't like if you go sin and he lists some sins, but go and serve other gods and worship them. I mean, we would almost say if, if this was present time, the God's reading Solomon's mail. He already can see what's going to happen. He already knows by the events. He doesn't even have to look into the future. He can see the red flags today. Today being the current time. And if you do that, I'm going to destroy all this. Is he destroying it? What? No, he's trying to destroy it. That's what we see in Jeremiah. If you were with us two years ago in Jeremiah, what does Jeremiah keep saying? God is doing this to get you to turn back, repent and turn back. He's not just doing this as punishment. He's doing this as discipline. Will you heed this discipline and turn back? You ever had a child, you just go, well, you know, okay, I've grounded you for, for two days. And then they go, you go, what do I have to do? Now you're grounded for a week. Now I'm taking away the car forever. In fact, you can never leave your room again. God keeps trying to get the Israelites' attention. He says it right here, and he uses this, and Israel will become a proverb. Who's the writer of Proverbs. Solomon, in his great wisdom, and that term means it'll be a, a, a one-word indicator for bad, okay? Like Sodom, pretty soon it, they'll just say Israel, and that means disobedient people who were severely punished by God. That's the proverb. Not only that, when they go by, they're, they're going to hiss and, and, and Jeremiah used the same term, that when they walked by Jerusalem, they were going to hiss because it was so evident of how disobedient they were by the consequences that came about. And he warns them, know this, if you do this, this will be the result. And you got to know that Solomon's going, yeah, yeah, you're right, Lord, <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. No problem. I hear you. I hate the word, the phrase, I hear you. It means I've listened, heard the words, 
and am totally ignoring what you've said. All right, let's go on to the end of 9. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house, and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horan and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir, and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. He starts off by having to pay off... Um Hiram, because all that Hiram gave him, he gave him these 20 cities. Uh, Hiram doesn't find them particularly great cities. One of the reasons it might be is they're buffer cities between uh, some of the, uh, the northern uh, countries. So it's kind of a contested zone. So really what he's taken is Hiram made him a buffer between uh, the northern king, part of his kingdom and the northern kingdoms. Um, also, th- why is that even there? I mean, it's a it's a paragraph, but we haven't got any conclusion. Well, first, who is Solomon to be given away the land of God? God's given this land as a gift, and he's already bargaining in a way for gold and for, for different uh, items. And then he goes on through this, and then we get this special down in 24 about Pharaoh's daughter. She has a special place. Why is she, why is she there? I mean, he's got other Hebrew brides or, or wives. Why? Because that's, that's the red flag. That's another red flag. She's going to be very critical in him being drawn away along with other wives. But she's symbolic for all the foreign wives that are going to lead him astray. And then he continues to offer and and uses the temple and acknowledges the temple, but still doesn't truly see 
what's going on. So, all right, let's grab a Bible, go to your discussion groups. If you haven't put in a, been put in a discussion group, come on up and see me and we'll do that.